Welcome to the Palladium Podcast, episode 18. I've got Ash with me here on the Palladium Editor team. Hey, how's it going? But we've also got some Palladium writers here for this episode. Ryan Karana, who's written for us on automation, and Avitas Muradyan, henceforth Avi, who wrote a very widely read narrative uh, and economic analysis piece comparing Canada's economic pessimism to stagnation in the late USSR. Uh, of course, that's an incredibly unjust summary of it, but that's what we'll begin with discussing today. And and so with that, Ash, why don't you uh, set more of the frame of the discussion for this for this episode? Sure. So the piece uh, is called How Not to Build a Country, Canada's Late Soviet Pessimism. Obviously, we're trying to be quite provocative with that, but I think on uh, well-grounded terms. Uh, that's basically what we'll be discussing today. Um, I'm going to start with having Avi give an... Uh, a summary of his piece uh, so we can have the main points on board. Uh, and then I know Ryan wanted to weigh in with some of his own analysis. Uh, he's quite well informed about the tech sector uh, in Canada and the US alike. Uh, and then I think we'll be able to have an interesting discussion from there about how innovation development should be working both in Canada and the US because a lot of the principles here uh, apply on a more universal stage than just in one country. So, yeah, to begin, uh, Avi, why don't you tell us a bit about what caused you to write the piece and the main points you wanted to get across here? Of course. Well, firstly, thanks for having me on the Palladium podcast. I've been uh, following quite a few podcasts this year, and it's, a, it's an honor to be hosted. Uh, so about the piece, um, the impetus was um, I came back from China around November of last year, and I've been in the city uh, since then. And I was working in tech in China, and I came to Vancouver and continued working uh, in, in, in the same field. And the differences in speed, in mentality, in approach uh, pushed me to analyze closely what was really, really slowing down, what was inhibiting innovation, optimism, um, the desire to succeed, the desire to build that I found lacking anemic in uh, in the Canadian context but specifically specifically Vancouver um, so the piece I structured the piece in a in an experimental form because it's part narrative part memoir part economics and part history and the purpose of the piece was uh, was to set out an invitation to to the public in general to to readers widely as to what they think was uh, was causing this uh, this slowdown, this lack of optimism, and there's a little bit of everything for uh, a little bit of something for everybody. So there's the economics portion for people who are more inclined towards that. There's the narrative to draw people in, the stories, the stories about immigration, the stories about uh, Canada's performance in the 1990s, manufacturing, technology, real estate, and so on. Um, right, so. And I cover quite a bit of ground um, it, w with these different topics. So the main point of the piece and the comparison uh, at the center, it's a little bit drawn out, but it's the psychological states of, um, of th that struck me as quite similar. Um, so the psychological state, which, which one might call the form of hyper-normalization, right? Um, between the USSR from during the Brezhnev years and Canada right now. So if you guys don't know, during the Brezhnev years, the, the USSR experienced something like, um, like an, a, a sort of stagnation, an, an economic stagnation. And you have to understand this in the context that 
the USSR's economy was growing very, very quickly under Stalin and was very, very dynamic under Khrushchev. But when Brezhnev took power, it, it, it came completely to a stop in the 20 years uh, of, of the Brezhnev rule. And, um, and it, that created op a sense of pessimism, a sense of disbelief, um, and this very interesting state called hypernormalization, which is basically something like um, the vast majority of people no longer believe in the official narrative. And the elite itself didn't believe in the narrative. But there's no, there's no way of conceptualizing an alternative. So it's this permanent loop of pessimism. And I covered that in different places. Um, so my main contention was the asset inflation and the real estate market that's, that's, that's become world famous now um, in Canada is, is kind of um, absorbing, is, is driven by this sense of pessimism. The reason the real estate market is so bloated and is absorbing all this capital from all over the country is because people don't believe in anything else, right? So uh, why would anyone purchase the most low-tech asset in the world when you have when you could be investing in companies which are at the cutting edge of innovation, unless you are pessimistic about the future. So uh, I think that that's a that's a good meta of what the what the piece was. Yeah, and there's something uh, I think comes through really strongly in the piece, uh, as you say. There's this pessimistic narrative that seems to envelop the minds of people working in the country, but also those governing the country, uh, both in your Soviet example and in the Canadian economy you're looking at today. Uh, I think a point I'd like you to touch on, as you say, the narrative aspect is very important. Um, you've already mentioned, but you chose a very powerful narrative format for this piece, which is pretty unusual when you're looking at most economic analysis. Uh, there seems to be something of a belief there that maybe it is possible to somehow propose a different narrative or or change it in a substantive way, not just someone on the margin saying something, but maybe somehow it's able or it's possible for broader populations or governing elites to actually shift uh, the narrative that they're acting on when they're making these kinds of decisions. Uh, could you elaborate on that and how you're thinking about this narrative aspect? Yeah, the narrative aspect has a very specific role to play in the piece. And I'm going to throw this question back at you, but um, essentially the kind of gridlock, the kind of stagnation that, that is being experienced in Canada and in the Soviet Union is very, 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 very difficult to solve. I don't have a solution. I really, really can't think of how to get out of this state of pessimism. So the piece itself, the narrative format is used as an invitation, as an invitation to participate. So um, the, the range itself, the economics is generally quite inaccessible, but the narrative is, is used to draw in people from, from all over Canada, from all the sectors in the economy to uh, provide some kind of answer or to think a, to think a solution through. Uh, so the main problem, the main, uh, the main issue as to why this is this is very hard to solve because it's kind of a, it's it's a reinforcing loop, right? So uh, there's this sentence I think in the piece which which goes something like this, which is, is there no innovation in Canada because all the capital is being absorbed by real estate, or is all the capital in, 
being absorbed by real estate because there's no innovation in Canada. Right, how do you break that loop? So I'm gonna throw this question back at, um, at you guys. How do you, how do you break out of this, uh, of this gridlock? Well, and so I think that's uh, probably exactly the right point for our other guest, Ryan, to come in. Uh, as mentioned before, he had some thoughts uh, coming out of reading your piece and based on his own familiarity with the tech industry. So I'm going to turn it over to Ryan uh, and, well, present your ideas. Yeah, I, I wanted to start with just a question there, because in your piece, you, you showed how, you know, Toronto uh, or Canada as a whole, our GDP contribution from the, the ICT sector, it's, it's only gone up about half a percent uh, in the last five years. And so that kind of, you, you made the argument that this dispels the notion that uh, Canada is becoming an emerging tech power. But I, I find that kind of like a, a, a leap just from the fact that we have this, this asset bubble in, in real estate. I'll, I'll take that, that argument for granted that, you know, our, our housing prices are quite, quite inflated and there's a lot of rent seeking in land development. But I think that's a problem that's afflicting a lot of developed countries right now, especially countries with lower manufacturing bases. It seems bleeding money out of the land sector seems to be the thing to do. But in no way does that come as an indication that there is nothing else to do. It's just saying that there is this grift that's institutionally inbuilt, but there's innovation coming alongside it and a lot of the gains to come from that, they're capturing it. So I, I'd like to frame it in this way, which is your, your a fundamental argument in your piece I, I found is that, that Canada isn't creating a lot, that a lot of this is an illusory creation. I'd like to turn that back and say, you know what, we are creating a lot. There are a lot of things coming out of Canada. But all those gains are, instead of being captured by the people that produce them, they're either being captured by countries like the states, which have money, or they're being captured by rent seekers in the real estate space. So it's a difference between creation and capture. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to see what you, you have to say about that. Okay, let me ask you a question. How many unicorns are in Canada? But is, is that the measure, I think, of a vibrant system? So one of the, the things that the Canadian um, ecosystem provides that, that very few other places do is a, a research strategy. Um, Canada is well acknowledged as being the first country to develop a coordinated artificial in intelligence strategy. Three um, uh, Turing Prize winners this year, two of which are uh, Canadian-based researchers, and the third, Jan Lacoon, was funded by the Canadian Institute for Fa uh, Advanced Research while he was developing deep learning, kind of the fundamental technique for all these artificial intelligence advances. A lot of the research in, in the automation space is coming out of here, including in in self-driving cars, Uber's research lab is here. Even if it's not being commercialized here, that work is being done here. We are creating that value. Yeah, but does that necessarily translate into into wealth into uh, for the general economy for the general population, right? Yeah, and so I think that that's that's my point, just to say about the creation versus capture, right? That, you're right. There is research. You're absolutely correct, but it it's it never quite flourishes into. Um, into into real economic or market power, right? So companies companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon have real market power on the world stage. They have real market power domestically. Um, the, the question about the unicorns points to that. It's basically, yes, the research is being done. We have a lot of talented people. Um, but why isn't that being developed and why isn't that translating into gains for, for the wider Canadian economy, right? You're right. Now, and I think that's the important question to ask as well. And I'm not saying that we're, we're capitalized on everything very well, but I think there's a different frame to present that in um, that requires more modest solutions than you, than you presented in your piece. 
because to say that we aren't producing this kind of economic value at this point is, is different than saying we're not producing the key components of it. We aren't capturing the value for, for a myriad of reasons. One is a lot of the companies that do get commercialized out of here get bought out by foreign companies even before they get to grow. Another well-known phenomena is our IP flight. A lot of about 50% of the AI patents filed in Canada in the last five years have been purchased by American companies. So we have a struggle of keeping that economic value here. But to, to keep that here is very different than saying, you know, we have all of it extracted and we need to revitalize our, 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 our perceptions. Because I think there is a lot of optimism. I think actually, if anything, there's a little exuberance about all the fundamental things that we create and less of a pressure to commercialize them because people feel that, you know, we've done the real work. And a response to that issue is very different than the response to saying, you know, we live in a kind of Brezhnevite economy where everyone has this complacency and normalcy. I don't, I, I, I don't see that as the vibe, and I don't think responding to that as the problem would, would resolve our issue of capture. There's something I'd like to bring up here, uh, which is discussed near the end of the piece, and it draws on something that Palladium has examined in various articles on a number of different countries, uh, and that's the role of the state in economic strategy and even economic life to an extent. Um, obviously, one of the paradigms that is growing today uh, is this renewed look at a state as having an active role in the creation of value, uh, both directly in terms of investment, but also in terms of solving these sorts of coordination problems. For example, if capital flight is a problem uh, or if wealth is not staying in the country, um, perhaps this is the sort of problem where that kind of intervention is legitimate. Um, I'd like to bring it into the discussion because in your piece, Avi, you kind of have a discussion at the end, um, noting, I think, that Canada is not the sort of country uh, where spontaneous economic growth has always occurred. Canada, in its history, has had a very strong state role in economic development, going back to things like the building of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Um, but you also look at other countries like France, where a more uh, dirigist economy uh, was the strategy chosen? Um, I guess I'd like to put this to both of you, and let's start with you, Avi. Uh, do you think that this kind of turn in economic thinking is an appropriate solution here, or is this a red herring? Well, it's it's historical context. You can't develop anything out, out of its historical context. Um, so when we're talking about things not being created, partially uh, a measure of, of low innovation and low optimism is low investment, right? Is how much money is being invested by, by VCs, how strong is the VC sector in Canada to fund younger companies, right? Or even, even let's say, bigger ones. So we don't have any unicorns. That's already an issue. But I, I I'll also, also suspect that the weakness in the VC sector in Canada stems from, uh, from low capital and low optimism. Uh, so the state... Uh, in, in countries which have had issues with capital, so uh, Germany is an example, France is another, in order to develop a, a modern capitalist economy, the state has been the primary, um, primary creditor. So the state would take on debts, develop, invest in certain key sectors of the economy, and that, that 
uh, capital would be then transmitted through through these projects um, into the hands of, of, of capitalists who then reinvested into a, a modern industrial economy. And Canada has not developed um, alongside the US and UK model, which were uh, based on large trading empires in the 18th century. And there was already capital available on hand to invest in, in, a, in a modern industrial economy. So in Canada, the, the state has played a very active role. And when we're discussing innovation and the lack of capital, we have to understand that context, right? So how do you build a VC sector in Canada if there's not enough capital in the country? To do so, right, and we'll get into issues of leverage, right? Um, so let's say let's say I, I'm an investor and I have fifty thousand dollars. If I go to the bank and I and I tell them I want to buy a house for five hundred thousand, you'll be able to get a loan. But if I tell them if I go to the bank, I say there's this really cool company they're investing they're building this really cool product. I have fifty thousand dollars as a down payment and I want to invest five hundred thousand. You won't be able to get that leverage. So the state and, and the institutions play a role in channeling capital and creating leverage, but without the leverage, um, it's nearly impossible to assemble the capital to do big projects uh, on its own. So when we're talking about innovation in Canada, and especially when it comes to the research that Ryan men mentioned, the state has, an active, has, been, has always played an active role, and it is very, very, very difficult to think of a of, a, of an alternative where the state does not play an active role. So I, I want to push back a little bit on that characterization of the, the venture capital state here. I, I wouldn't, I'm not that familiar with most of Canada on that regard, but I just know from my experience in Toronto that I do not think that the fundamental issue is kind of a lack of capital or a lack of belief in opportunity. I think it's it's more of a conservatism of expectations. And this is something you see in the UK as well, even with a very active space. Mm -hmm. You have yeah. exits happen at a very kind of modest degree. You have exits happening at the five or ten million mark, whereas your the unicorns you want that's an exit at over a billion, right? That's a huge valuation. But investors here expect modest returns. But that doesn't, I think, invalidate the way venture capitalists are operating here. Um, the acceleration, um, the accelerator ecosystem in Toronto is is a model that's being um, taken for granted in other places and it's, it's, it's expanding. The Creative Destruction Lab that was founded out of here to build deep science companies uh, opened a branch in, in Oxford just this year because of how successful their model was. There are accelerators, university-backed accelerators in Toronto that have the highest degree of exits of any accelerator in the world. There are venture capital firms here like Georgian Partners and the like who invest a huge amounts into mon uh, of monies into longer term research projects, which you wouldn't find as much in, let's say, a Bay Area venture capitalist who are looking for, for quicker returns. I am aware of the problem that you're saying of you're not getting these kinds of very eager people to dispense tons of capital and get that unicorn to come out. But I don't think that's a problem of not having the capital and leverage. And I don't think that's a, a problem of having low expectations. I think that's a problem if you even want to call it a problem of having a different horizon and perspective on what they want. I see a lot more longer term investments here than I did when I, when I went to San Francisco. Uh, I see a lot more investment with modest expectations and so for a higher, higher expectation of readiness from the company. Now you can say that that speculative type of investment is great at breeding unicorns. It also provides a new avenue for the very type of rent seeking uh, you have identified in the housing market. 
um, go down to the Bay Area and about at least 30% of the startups there are grifters trying to, to get some of that VC money and they don't intend to build a product at any point in time, right? And so balancing those things is still a, a vital thing for venture capitalists to do and they, they, they look at their own internal risk tolerance. So I wouldn't say it's, a, it's an immaturity of our ecosystem. I, I would say it's a difference in priorities. Uh, the priority being that it's okay to move slowly. Um, Right. And it, you're right. The mentality is, is different. There's an investment strategy and, and risk tolerance that, that comes into it. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you try to raise funds in Asia, particularly in China, and you go to a VC and you ask them, I need half a million dollars so I can expand in 24 months and overtake the market. The response you're likely to get is something along the lines of, here's $2 million, do it in 12 so this, uh, this emphasis on speed and market capture um, is tied very, very directly to how quickly the country, the whole country is expanding, right? So people have high expectations from all sectors of, uh, of the economy and including the employees themselves, right? Um, the salaries are rising very quickly in China. So it all ties into this uh, this look into the future and the expectation that things are going to be better and several times better, right? So your salary might double in four years. Your company will overtake the market in 12 months. So I wanted to ask you on that then. That, that exists in China due to the structure of their, their financial system. A financial system that by any kind of independent looking at is just completely uh, nonsensical in its balance sheet. But it's based on this kind of idea that, you know, we can do all of that because we need to move fast. And the expectation is that 99% of these companies will not return the debts they have to pay. But the few that will will do so in such spades that it'll, it'll allow for solvency in the end. Now, that's a trade-off you have to make between the speed is have the winner no matter how many people we lose on or our balancing act, which is more averse to that failure. And it's not clear to me that the, 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 that Chinese approach is necessarily better in all cases. And, and I wonder if you want to take the rest of the baggage of that Chinese financial sector that sustains that ecosystem and bring that over to Canada. And you think that would be a good model here? Uh, I think something that would be worth looking at here as well, um, because we are trying to think about what is the mindset of states here uh, China and the U.S., both large countries, large populations, large capital bases, etc. Canada, a smaller country. Um, in answering that question, Avi, I think it would be interesting to touch on how would strategies differ here between countries of different sizes? Because it seems to me China's clear strategy is that they want to start playing a hegemonic role in global tech infrastructure the way that the U.S. has been able to do. And there are very political reasons for that. Uh, a smaller country, uh, that's extremely difficult often, if not impossible to do. And so I wonder if that changes the strategy. Certainly. So uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the innovation is, is officially supported by the state in China. So a lot of the funds are backed by the government. Um, there's a lot of money going into technology. And, they're, and they're, they can adopt this kind of approach. Uh, Primarily for, I think the two main drivers behind it are a sense of optimism. The Chinese economy is growing at spectacular rates and has been doing so for about 20 years. 
if you if if you're accustomed to that kind of, to those levels of growth, if your life if it is getting better year after year, if you're getting richer year after year, if your salary is doubling every couple of years, um, your expectations and for the future are very different. And this this transcends everyone. So the engineers in the company that you hire, uh, the management, the investors, all approach. Um, investing from that angle that things are going to get much much better very quickly but also uh, this willingness to lose people this willingness to fail is also not just optimism it's it's partially this uh, uh, availability availability of capital so that plays a role too now uh, this the state plays an active role in uh, in, in, chi in trying to get Chinese innovation up to speed with the United States. And it's a model that could be, that, that is interesting for Canada because we, uh, we have a lot of also state-sponsored initiative and they, and they work quite well. Um, and there's potential to expand on those and not necessarily in the Chinese way of giving money to uh, government-backed funds and try to get those investments going. But um, there's a number of initiatives and even um, programs that can be used to support innovation that could be expanded, for example. Uh, keeping, uh, keeping along with the spirit of a, of a more managed economy, of a more directed economy in, in the Chinese style or the French style or the German style. Uh, it's not clear to me there what Canada really gains by imitating those styles, though. And so the reason why I said if you want to take that baggage is because our objectives differ radically as, a small, as like a, a, a middle-sized country compared to, to China or the States. And I don't think trying to replicate the Silicon Valley style or even the Shenzhen style is what's taking advantage of our unique strengths. And you can you, you have certain venture capital firms that are now starting to, to pop up in Canada. You know, Radical Ventures was just announced uh, by, by former people at, at TD Bank, and they, they explicitly brand themselves as having a Silicon Valley style of investment. But if you speak to people there, they still have the same mentality that many of the existing firms in Canada have, which is we want to make longer term bets. We want to build stuff that's more infrastructural. And in all of those, the style that the United States has or the style that China has isn't perfect for it. You, you go to Silicon Valley and, and you, you hear people say, you know, this isn't the start of capital. It's the scale of capital. You already come with something that's almost tested and we build the infrastructure to bring it, bring it up. Canada doesn't have that yet. We build those tools, those components, and that's where our competitive advantage lies. And that's not to say we don't have to do stuff to capture that value more. I would love to see us retain more of the IP we develop, but it suits our competitive advantage more to be those people that have that IP, that have that kind of underlying technology that everyone needs, rather than you know we have the Alibaba or we have the Amazon, which costs a lot of money, which needs these quick short-term returns uh, or, or, or like a lot, lot of short-term cash flows to be sustainable. Um, and, and, you, and to sustain that, you need a user base the size well outside what this country can provide. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, we definitely agree on that point. Canada cannot completely replicate um, the model, neither, neither should it. But um, what we should replicate, what we should... Um, what we should look into is the optimism and the availability of uh, and the increasing availability of capital, right? 
uh, that's something that, that I would like to see in Canada. And I think it's possible. I, I'm wondering if you think that we're not optimistic right now, given... So take, for example, uh, the pan-Canadian AI strategy. I brought it up a little earlier, where, where the government picked three, three champion cities, Toronto, Montreal, and Edmonton. Uh, it's invested hundreds of millions of dollars. It's building out new companies that are, are doing these infrastructural tools for AI. Go, uh, there's a lot of consultancies coming up that are going and getting companies AI ready. A lot of them exist because of the investments the government has made. A lot of our research institute exists because of the investments the government has made. And as a result of these strategic investments, which combine capital with um, a pull for talent, you see research hubs for larger American companies moving up here. Uber moved their self-driving uh, research lab up to Toronto. Facebook moved its AI research headquarters up to uh, Montreal. And we're seeing a respect for what we're offering happen. We're seeing a global leadership on those points. And I'm wondering if what you want is even more money or, or a more direct desire from the strategy. That's not to say the strategy is perfect. I'm just saying that I see that optimism and that desire to be a leader in something very alive and well in Canada. In very specific hubs, and there's always this sentiment that it's never quite enough. Um, we don't, yes, there's some leadership, but it's comparative, right? We're not the best at AI. We have a competitive AI sector. We're not the best at certain things, but we have something that's, that's, that's a contender. Um, we all, also the size of those hubs, right? Uh, compared to Shenzhen, compared to even even more uh, compared to even more modest cities like London and so on, we're really really not not punching up, right? And um, you might get a few initiatives from the government, and those are great. But how much wealth is that going to create? Like, how is that going to translate into um, into long term prosperity for the country? I just want to jump in here and reframe a little bit some of what we've discussed because there have been a few points brought up that I think are going to be useful to bring together. So the one was the idea that we need to capture more of our wealth. The other one is, and this to me actually sounds even bolder in a way, is that maybe we can actually attract outside players as a preferred uh, ur you know, urban space and zone for development and the like. Um, obviously, for anyone who has interacted with people in the tech scene, especially in a place like Vancouver, which is right on the Pacific coast, um, going to a place like Hong Kong or Shanghai uh, or the Bay Area for funding is quite common. Um, I, I'd like to delve into the mechanisms, though, how to retain that wealth, how to attract people, and then how that resulting infrastructure can be scaled up in a way that is domestic, does build up the country, right? Because I think that's the unifying idea in this piece here is that a state, in a sense, has an interest and a duty to build a domestic infrastructure that generates wealth in a way that's aligned with its natural competitive advantages. Um, so, Ryan, since you had brought up that point, uh, why don't we start with you here, and then we can get the response. I think that, that we're already seeing some of those things occur. Um, Canada has its, its, its global skills strategy, which has paid in spades the last few years. Um, we have seen 
cities that uh, have been selected to be champions, such as uh, Edmonton, have a boost to their tech sectors, recruiting workers who would have otherwise gone to the States, but because of a combination of our more uh, welcoming immigration system and their more recently closed one, we, we have attracted them. And Edmonton's a, a funny case in that example because they've had tons of capital there and they've had tons of open jobs in the IT space for a long time, but it's been hard for them to recruit the necessary skilled talent because, you know, Alberta hasn't famously had a base to train tech talent or entrepreneurial talent outside of the oil and gas space. And given how cold it is, they've even had an internal trouble of recruiting people from within Canada. But if you're coming from a country that you're, 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 you have the best grades in India and you want to make a career in Canada, Edmonton seems like a great place to start. Right? And so it's, it's a difference of, of willingness between bringing in that foreign talent and trying to relocate Canadian talent. And we've been doing that recently. It's not at fully consummated. It's not at full perfection. It's not um, redistributed in such an even way that we're leveraging each center's uh, unique strength as of yet. But I see that direction occurring. At the same point in time, we see different initiatives popping up to try to retain more of what we create. Um, one of the big issues that happened to a lot of Canadian universities is that they allow university-backed research to still have its IP retained by the PhD or postdocs that put their name on it. What, ha what that resulted in quite often is a flight of that IP to the States. Um, but the Vector Institute, uh, one of the AI research institutes that was championed by the government, they have a specific mandate to protect that IP. They own the IP that's created there and they get to leverage that and they license it back out to the authors. And so that direction is also good for uh, in my opinion. Can we do things that are more coordinated? Yes, I would love to see a federal level IP strategy come out to protect what we produce, to make sure it doesn't go to the states and to help return that money back into the Canadian ecosystem. Would I love to see an even more expansive global skills strategy that tries to uh, have more regional champions rather than just a couple of key cities? Yes, I would love to see that as well. But I see the direction being good. I do not see the degree of pessimism that um, Avi has made out. And, and I wonder whether he thinks that, you know, the steps we've made recently, those are steps in the right direction. Anything that can, uh, that can try to minimize flight out, outside of the country is good. Um, but it's always insufficient. And the problem is, is partially geographic because we're low, our southern border is basically with the United States. And it's so close. It's incredibly close. So whenever, every time, even when we bring talent from, from places like India who work into, in, in these advanced AI centers, um, what the risk, the main risk, and this has been going on for, for, for years now, is it's much easier to, to immigrate and to move workers from, from Canadian cities to American cities, even if those, uh, those workers aren't Canadian citizens. So what, what, uh, what American companies do is they go to these new tech uh, innovation hubs and recruit and pay higher salaries, of course, because they have the capital to do so. Um, and, and they bring those workers to the United States through, uh, through the immigration visas, which are available to uh, workers of, of American companies in, uh, in, uh, in Canada. Right? So w even when we say we have a, we have a strategy to, to attract talent, 
there's always the risk that that talent might go somewhere better paid. And we should, we should look at it also from, from, from the perspective of young people. The brightest minds in our country, even those who want to stay in Canada, can't justify it. They can't justify it even, even with those initiatives. Those initiatives are not enough to counter the pull of a place like Silicon Valley. I have many classmates, for example, who are uh, European Union citizens who decided to, to go to London because the pull of London is even greater than, than any of the local initiatives. And it always comes back to cost of living, uh, the, how cool the product is that they're working on. So even though we have some initiatives and we're probably leading in some areas, it's not enough to keep the best minds. The best minds are attracted to the hardest problems and the hardest problems are elsewhere. Um, now, I want to touch a little bit about, about how, what countries can do to retain talent. So if you look at countries which have a similar pattern of development with large state, uh, state involvement, uh, let's say France and, and Germany, the strategy that France had, has, had taken over the course of, uh, of the past two centuries since the revolution is to, um, to unify, to, to create national champions, to create big companies, to create, in a way, state unicorns, state-backed unicorns, so that internal innovation always gets absorbed and remains into these organizations which have the capital and the vision to sustain them. Um, is, that, is that the way to go for Canada? Maybe. It's, it's unclear now, but these initiatives are, are a start. They're not the complete answer to some of the problems that we have. Now that we're about uh, 40 minutes into the podcast and we've been looking at a, a particular specific case, I want to switch it a little bit more to the, the general case, general principles of, of building a country, of building an economy. One thing I noticed in the, in the reaction to, to your article, Avi, is that uh, a lot of a lot of commenters uh, were saying that they are experiencing on the ground the same sort of uh, dynamics you described in their respective uh, countries and cities. Because if we view this phenomenon as partly created by a combination of uh, worldwide urbanization trends and uh, landlordism in existing uh, cities that are, you know, they've got they've got uh, supply constraints on housing stock, whether that's because of um, the combination of, of existing homeowners and, and corporate landlord or landlords colluding against the expansion of housing stock or whether it's a, a geographic issue, uh, they're running up to this into this same problem. So I've, I've heard other cities mentioned, whether it's Australia or New Zealand, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of young people looking for more opportunity outside of uh, outside of these cities are going elsewhere because they find that a lot of their uh, capital uh, is going to rents basically whether it's business level or, or individual level so I'd like to I'd like us to discuss a little bit more uh, this this landlordism phenomenon and how it relates to uh, investment and economic expansion on a on a broader level as well uh, sure so it, it, that's right. I was reading the responses to the article and I've had quite a few people write to me and basically all they said was, we've been experiencing this in different places, including including in the European Union, particularly Ireland has been cited as an example, which is interesting because um, it's the headquarter of several uh, 
major major tech companies, right? Um, so yeah, so there's a there's a general trend, and it, this is also uh, this is also present in the U.S. even even though Silicon Valley is there and so on. But there's a general trend and feeling that uh, technology and innovation are slowing down, and it's it's been true. Like think of what's the le last major breakthrough in in transportation. Last major breakthrough in transportation is in the 60s with the uh, with the uh, with the space race, right? So things aren't getting faster, better in all the sectors. The only real area where we've seen significant improvement is in information technology with computers. But almost all the other sectors, almost all the other sectors that require techno technical development, um, haven't really been delivering. So. A lot of these, a lot of countries have been feeling the same problem: is that the capital, a lot of capital is being was generated, and it wasn't going into manufacturing or building up, but it was being absorbed in rents because it's the safest investment. Yeah, and I think that opens up an important avenue of discussion here, which is essentially about value and how uh, different economies are essentially evaluated both by governments, but also by workers and companies when they're looking at countries to base out of, to operate in, to expand in. Um, the sort of orthodoxy here has been, right, that when you look at a number like GDP, you're not really that concerned about the particular industry, but there's a fundamentally uh, perhaps corrosive phenomenon going on here if one cares about things like innovation, where essentially non-innovative markets are cannibalizing innovative ones, um, at least in the sense that those working in them are not able to reinvest uh, to a great extent in back into innovation. Their, their, their incomes and cost of living, etc., are being taken up by non-innovative economies. Uh, housing here is a big one, obviously. Um, one can also look at uh, aspects of the financial sector um, when it comes to the perspective of the state, I think we're definitely seeing a time now where this orthodoxy might have been able to survive when there was a kind of, not monolithic, but at least integrated economic order under dominant American leadership. We're at a point now where innovation is actually a geostrategic issue. Um, that's obviously driving uh, a lot of the discussions happening right now. So I'd like to, and we've already mentioned cases about this, how do we build up uh, second and third tier cities in a country um, when labor is moving uh, outside? Is that a problem for us? Um, I guess I'd like to put this question to both of you. What is the most important thing that a state can do in order to jumpstart uh, innovation and economies that are producing essentially value in the sense that you are building the infrastructure of the world. You are setting the institutional, technological, even legal norms by which other players have to operate. I'll open the floor to that. Yeah, I'll, I'll just jump in there because I have a little bit of a different um, kind of theory of, of what's happening with innovation right now. Uh, not so much 
the kind of bits versus atoms thing that was uh, was presented by Avi, which which I I agree with in in many respects. It's it's we don't see a lot of hardware innovation occurring as much, but it, a lot of it's because the hardware problems are getting tougher and they pay off in the longer term, and so they they aren't as exciting to work on and we won't see even when people are working on them because there are people working on them we don't see their results as often um but i think that kind of hardware turnaround we're reaching the precipice where it has to happen because the gains in software based technologies i'm not talking about you know the apps like tiktok i'm talking about um improvements in like automation resources won't be occurring unless Either architectures, uh, computer architectures are improved or computer hardware is improved at a faster rate than it is currently. And so there is more of an incentive right now. And also a lot of the point of, of automation technologies is to bleed into real world effects. If you want to automate a factory, if you want to develop an internet of things, if you want self-driving cars, those have to interact with, with physical things and those physical components need to improve in order for them to be reliable. And so what we need, what we're seeing then is a pushback um, towards finding creative solutions to these things. And quantum computing investments are a great example of a creative solution to a hardware bottleneck problem. At the same time, we're also seeing uh, governments kind of loosen up to the need for hardware innovation. Uh, aviation is a great case. You know, we've had innovation in drones. Um, the FAA in the United States has recently reauthorized the testing of supersonic flight uh, to improve airline speeds. Um, Ontario in Canada is, is pretty bull on self-driving cars and has lifted a lot of restrictions for their testing so that the infrastructure can be improved. And a lot of the research on how to actually build the policy infrastructure for how to enable self-driving cars, because I think that's one of the real bottlenecks right now, less the technology of the car and more its interaction with the environment and creating the right environment that's being done in Canada at the moment. And instead of the narrative of we don't see a lot of innovation in atoms and we see some in bits, I'd like to press the narrative that we've had these components be building out, but for them to actually build a concrete end product that leads to a, a perception of innovation, you need um, a lot of things to go right. First, you need all the components to be organized in the right way. And second, you need the skills and the talents of people to understand how to utilize those components. And this takes longer than it takes to build those components themselves. Uh, there's a famous thing called the Solos Paradox in computing. Um, uh, well, it's in economics of computing, where you had most of the basic computer innovations occur two decades before any impact of computers were seen in the productivity statistics. The reason why? People didn't know how to use them well. They weren't put in the right places yet. And when they started to be put in the right places, it took a learning curve before those investments paid off. And so I think that's where we're at right now. We're at a place where a lot of components are coming out. The, the underlying aspects of innovation are coming out. But what we need now is the knowledge and the understanding of how to put this together and innovation will come for in the future. But it's much more than just hardware. It's it's all it's nearly all, all sectors. So, and it, it affects nearly all, almost every country, with the exception of um, uh, of a few. There has been very little innovation in uh, in sectors 
outside tech, outside what is considered traditionally technology. So have we really improved transportation over the past 20 years? Not exactly. Have we really made major jumps in, in medical breakthroughs? Not really. What, the last major breakthrough in physics was in the 1960s. Um, so even, even if it takes a long time for these to take effect, um, there needs to be a, a, a shift in, in how we approach this new kind of innovation, this uh, non-bit innovation, non-software innovation. So a lot of these innovations are going to take more capital and more time. And this is where I feel the state has a more significant role to play. So if investments in material science, for example, can take 10 years or 12 years to materialize, can take 15 years to, um, to, to be even monetizable, to be even brought to market, then this is, this is the perfect gap. This is where the state can step in and um, try, to make, try to make a bet on certain technologies that will give enormous advantage to, um, to, to the countries that are able to develop them, but where um, private capital might be a little more skeptical or might be unable to stomach that kind of, um, that kind of investment. So I think a good turn to take here would be a sort of politicization of this discussion because we're, the debate here I think is a little abstract. Um, we're talking about decisions that could be taken. We're discussing states. We're talking less about the agents of those decisions, so to speak. And Jonah had sort of touched on this already when he mentioned this landlord uh, issue. Obviously, when we talk about a real estate problem in terms of wealth being sapped, that's not this kind of impersonal force, right? There are people who benefit, people who have invested in property, uh, sort of the landlord class in various cities, especially in the big hubs where hence are, rents are extremely high. Um, it strikes me that when we're talking about innovation in this way, the beneficiaries, the drivers, and so on, we have to kind of come to this question, what are the classes that drive innovation in this way? What are the classes which stifle it? Because as states make these decisions, there is a political competition that goes on there. Um, obviously, in a number of cities now, you've had movements that want to radically deregulate housing development in order to increase the supply side. Um, you know, they, they tend to see things like regulation in that sector as protecting a very entrenched class. And Avi, based on your thesis, that's protecting a class that is stifling or at least absorbing the proceeds of what innovation does occur. And so Avi, I want to start with you on this one. Um, let's bring some class analysis into this. Who do you see as being the real agents driving innovation then? Who states should really be looking at as allies if they're pursuing those policies? So uh, a central, central thesis of my piece was that innovation is driven by young people um, with technical talent. And I absolutely believe that. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. Um, I've worked with these people. These are the people who are willing to do the 12 hours a day required to make an innovation happen. They're the people who are willing to change the world. Um, and this class needs to, be, needs to be valued much more significantly by, by, by the powers that be. There's, there's a lot of talk about um, immigration and skill development and investing in education. Um, but we need to think about uh, this class as 
specific people with interests uh, and with specific incentives that they respond to. Now, uh, while the state has this narrative that we want to invest in education, uh, create this kind of innovative class, support this uh, technical talent, what a lot of the state is doing is um, through, let's say, municipal politi uh, political uh, machinations or through bureaucratic slowdown or through maybe even a generational gap, right, uh, is uh, slowing down and creating an environment which is hostile to innovation, creating an environment where these young engineers, these young computer scientists, these young programmers don't want to work in anymore. Um, and stifling, for example, development and housing. And it just, all, all, all of that, um, uh, all of that uh, friction against, against this innovative class creates a sense of pessimism. So that, that's, that's a good overview, I think, of, of what's, what's, uh, what the class aspect of that is. It's property, then landed classes, older generations, uh, uh, older stock heritage uh, Canadians who are holding back this innovative class that's coming in. Uh, I agree in some respects. I think I've touched on this issue in, in, uh, in the stuff I've written for Palladium because I, over the last, since the Industrial Revolution effectively, we've and when we invented the method of invention innovation was taken to be as something scientific taken to be something as a given from certain processes and incentives and we expect a an ever expanding rate of it but i i i think fundamentally you know innovation it's more than just young people who are skilled with what you said it's also this it's a communication based thing it's it's about putting people together and mashing up and, and create and that creativity that flourishes in that environment and where Canada isn't uh, as innovative as it could be is because of how small our population is. Um, and there are two, two strategies. I think the class needs the, the ruling class would need to have in order to really sustain a boost in innovation. Um, one is boost our numbers, boost the amount of people in this country. And that can come from both having a, a pro-immigration movement, but also a pro-natalist movement. More kids equals more future innovation. Um, but beyond that, a second thing is, is expanding um, the number of cities in the country. And you, you, you've touched upon that where, you know, middle, middle class people see housing as the safest form of investment the view of it as an investment siphons off money from other resources and it also constricts the supply of future housing. Well, get outside of those boroughs that are, are already colonized by a complacent class and build new boroughs. That takes a lot of directed strategy. It, there hasn't been a new city pop up in Canada for, for a decent amount of time. You've had towns grow into cities, but these projects as of, of, of urbanization as intentional projects of urbanization aren't as common and wherever they are common that gets people motivated that gets people going and then that becomes a center of attracting the right kind of of meshing of ideas and I think so those those two are the coherent strategies for me for building a kind of class mindset if you want 
So it strikes me that there's actually a very good example here of this policy having been done in the past, if in a quite different context. But this is the Chinese special economic zones, right? Um, this isn't looked at so much now, but essentially part of the driving mechanism of how those zones were built was that there was an entrenched, often corrupt local political hierarchy that the central government found itself unable to route around. Uh, it wanted to drive economic growth, but it was it couldn't overcome that uh, obstruction. Uh, this is actually something similar to what Gorbachev uh, faced in the Soviet Union when he was trying to uh, reform that country. The China had the benefit, in a sense, of being a country that had not developed as widely as the Soviet Union had. They were able to use the special economic zones to this effect, literally building new infrastructure, new cities, new zones of innovation uh, that were able to route around the local hierarchies. Um, and I touched on this in my own piece a bit on charter cities that I did um, last year. Uh, this was a way that the central government ultimately strengthened itself. This was a very statist move, even though it was done through the method of localization and of privileging experimentation uh, on the local level. Um, ultimately, though, that diversification of economic and political power uh, was something that really strengthened the Chinese state. Um, is there a lesson to be learned here then? Uh, I know at least one, uh, like keeping on the Canada case, um, Premier Bob McLeod in the Northwest Territories has invoked special economic zones as a way to jumpstart growth there. So um, I'd put that out there. Is this a policy we should look at? Is that how we can develop our cities or is there another strategy here? The, the, the answer to these questions is always, yeah, maybe. Uh, we don't actually ha know if these policies are going to work because, first of all, they're reliant on... Uh, there, there's a few assumptions here, and it's going back to my point as to why, we, why I think there's, there's no real answer to, to the problems that I brought up, and I'm just inviting people to, uh, to think about those generally. So th this assumes that there's a general political will in jump-starting uh, jump innovation. I mean, there's, what incentive is there for, for people who, who are in rent-seeking positions, people who, um, people who are entrenched enough in the bureaucracy or who are entrenched enough in, in, in the cities to, uh, to think about a solution? Where is that political will going to come from? Uh, the, the other one is, is, is the question of competence. Okay, there's a political will to build these, uh, these new cities, but we've never done it before. And uh, that's, that's gonna be a major impediment to, uh, to creating any kind of, um, any kind of um, alternative to the, to the cities which are being bottlenecked right now. So in the case of China, the special economic zones were, put in, were being managed under managers who knew how, um, how, how, what land management meant. So China is a, is a country that had undergone through, uh, through, um, through major changes to land ownership. And the people who were put in charge of those special economic zones had, uh, had experienced uh, different revolutions, different changes in land ownership. So they were quite in touch with, uh, with the spatial dimension of politics. It's going to be very difficult to find people in Canada who who have that kind of experience. Yeah, I, there's one way to do it, which is the Chinese way, which is the build it and they will come way. Um, and so I was, I, I have a friend who is working in the Ontario Ministry of Infrastructure and he said that um, a Japanese 
uh, infrastructure official was over and complained that um, Toronto's infrastructure is comparable to a third world country. Not not a second world because they have pretty good infrastructure, but, <laughs> but a third world country. And one of the, the insights I got was, you know, Toronto has a very limited map for its subway infrastructure and all the development pockets around it and doesn't expand f- further. And there's a philosophy here that, you know, there isn't a critical mass of people, so we shouldn't build the develop the infrastructure further away. Whereas if you go to East Asia, be it China or Japan or Singapore or the like, it's the mentality that, you know, the development will come to wherever the state-backed infrastructure is. So build that subway first and pockets will spread about it. And that kind of short-term losses will be recouped when people move in and, and they start businesses and, and they make a living in those neighborhoods. Will, do I expect our cultural philosophy to change that we're going to build first and expect return second? Probably not. But the first strategy I suggested wasn't to build a new city. The first strategy I suggested was have a lot more people. And so if we keep getting more and more people, that political will you talked about, Avi, that will be necessitated by the amounts of new people that come in. And there is a, there's an initiative in Canada called the Century Initiative that wants Canada to have a population of 100 million people by 2100. That's the kind of stuff I think we really need. I think boosting our population threefold by the end of the century would force the ruling class to really consider more innovative solutions because it's the only way they stay in power. It's the only way that they can provide enough for people to not be threatened. And that's when innovation is most supported, when people feel that, you know, if there wasn't any innovation, there'd be a threat. And innovation exists in China today because without innovation, the Communist Party's legitimacy would be questioned. Innovation existed um, at its peak in the United States when they felt the threat of the Soviet Union. Ruling classes need to feel a threat to really care about innovation. And a threat to complacency is a radical rise in population. And I think that's what Canada really needs. I think there's uh, two things that jump out at me when it comes to this population growth question, specifically this framing of it. The first is the view of population as a strategic a strategic rather consideration. Um, obviously, you know, Today, this debate is either politicized in a way where we're talking about threats uh, to various things, or it's painted as a sort of moral imperative. And what that does is it leads uh, almost, you know, inevitably to a uh, creating a conflict around this question um, that I think having a long term and more strategic view has the potential to avoid. The other thing I think is the explicit um, focus on families and needless policies, which are themselves getting talked about a bit more now. Um, some of the Eastern European countries have very explicitly pursued population growth in this way. Um, but even in the US, I, I've, I've seen this topic discussed more. And when you look at families and children especially as vital in that way, um, obviously any politician uh, automatically has to talk about how important families are. But when it comes to the actual practices that are uh, put in place that would actually prove whether the political class 
in a coordinated and substantive way, sees families and children as not just kind of important for quality of life, although of course they are that, but actually vital for the future of the country, uh, that'd be a radical update, I think, in the way that the political class thinks. All of what you, Ash, mentioned and what Ryan mentioned has a presupposition of optimism. So people do not have children if they don't believe in the future. They don't believe in the future they can give their children. And immigration can become quite chaotic and can deteriorate the, deteriorate the, the quality of life of everyone else in the country if the optimism is not present. So, for example, I, I talked in my piece about the 350,000 immigrants that come in every year in Canada. Um, so there's a reliance on the idea that if immigrants come, then suddenly growth is going to magically happen. But usually what happens if you talk to the immigrants, especially the ones that are ad admitted in Canada with, uh, with uh, high accreditations, university degrees, you have a lot of doctors and engineers, they come in and they're faced they come face to face with, with the Brezhnevite problem. And the optimism that they bring to the country dissipates very quickly and often that, that, that amount of time is usually about seven months. So when an engineer comes into Canada, they have to get the necessary accreditations. When an architect comes to Canada, they, want to get, they need to get the necessary accreditations. Um, even if they do get those accreditations, the salaries are too low, the cost of living is too high, um, there's a general feeling of pessimism. and. A lot of the newer immigrants, I talked about um, about a few uh, immigrants from Iran who are very highly educated, who could be contributing to the Canadian economy, but for them, Canada is a hotel. Uh, they're here to get their papers, so they have a fallback position if things go south in Iran, but otherwise, they'll be here for a few years and go back to Iran where there's an actual sense of optimism. So in order to have a natalist, natalist policies, in order to have a proper immigration um, immigration-based growth, you need to have optimism in the country. It's a very abstract concept. It's very difficult to grasp, grasp to, like, how do you create optimism? How do you generate optimism um, so that people don't fall through the cracks, right? Um, and the, the format of the piece touches a little bit on that. It's a narrative format because I think ultimately the way to defeat the Brezhnevites, what, what do the Brezhnevites have? They have uh, they have bottlenecks in all the major institutions and the major in industries. Um, the professional associations are, are, are choking the new immigrants and so on. And talent is just, it's just everything is inefficient. They have a stranglehold on nearly everything in, in Canada. So what is it that the Brezhnevites don't have? The Brezhnevites don't have imagination. And I think this is, this is where... The format of the piece comes in. It's a narrative. It's a it's an invitation to imagine. It's an invitation to to tell better stories. I think at the core of defeating the Brezhnevite problem is to tell better stories, better stories of success, but better stories of failures. But people need to be motivated. They need to be drawn into um, into a narrative, drawn into a mindset. They, they need to be motivated, and there's a, there's a role to play for, for, for an emergent media class in, in, in trying to motivate people and trying to get people engaged with the country that uh, either they're born in or they immigrate to. Uh, so I think that's an interesting part of the discussion. I mean, if you, if you think back about the Soviet issue, we can always point to, for example, 
uh, Solzhenitsyn's writing and all the red emigre writing, these people were going up against a system that people thought were, was going to be there forever. People didn't think that the Soviet Union was going to collapse. But the narratives, the stories that were told had a huge effect in, in changing and shaping mindsets. So th that's, that's, that's a, um, that's a non-tangible, non-policy, uh, a more esoteric solution, but one that I think is quite effective, that will be quite effective in, in defeating the stranglehold. Yeah, I, I fully agree with all the comments you've made about you know, the immigrant experience, bureaucracy does choke it. Um, and I, I, I fully agree that there is this kind of unconcernedness with the future. I wouldn't go so far to call that a general pessimism. I would say more than anything, Canadians don't have a willingness or a capacity to market themselves. Um, we don't take credit when we do something well, and we don't complain that much when things don't go wrong. And so there doesn't seem, even when things are happening, it doesn't appear to people as if they're happening. And that, that does choke capacity in many ways that does choke a willingness to act um, or a willingness to for, for, for immigrants to adopt the mentality here when they're used to um, extremities. Um, you, you come from an Asian country, you're used to a far more emotionally uh, emotional range than is common here. But it, it, I, I also agree with your solution, though. I, there is a story that needs to be told, and I think in that sense it's a story that needs to be told of, of what it means to be a Canadian. Um, I think a lot of this complacency and lack of ability to, to be extreme comes from the fact that Canadians don't really see themselves as much more than the cousin of the Americans, and we're, we're, we're silent as a result of that. And I would love to see this concept of a Canadian identity pop out, a, a belief in Canada as a nation, and I think that would do more for optimism than anything else because all the tools for optimism are there. They just People just need a reason to care about them. And, and that, that comes from believing in, in Canada. And, and, and I totally agree in everything you said about the stories being the core way of building that. I think Cousin is probably a little bit optimistic. and <laughs> It might be little brother or very, very younger brother or something like this. Um, one interesting thing I think is that I've met various immigrants in the Bay Area who maybe 10 years ago would have said leaving my home country and coming to the U.S. was the, the greatest thing I ever did. I have no intention of going back to my home country. I want to get U.S. papers. I want to stay here. I want to build my family here. This has slowly started to change over the last couple of years, I feel, and more and more people I, I run into say, uh, it's not just an economic problem that the rents in, in the Bay Area are too high. It's that since maybe like 2012, American society has been going in a certain ideological direction. And, and many of these immigrants are not comfortable with that ideological direction, specific, specifically given their own experiences in their, in their home countries and what they're used to traditionally. And so often what I hear is, okay, I'll put in my tour of duty in a major tech center in the US and then I'll go back home where I have my my extended family, my traditions I'm comfortable with, the the culture I grew up in and I'll I'll work remotely or I'll use some of my skills to benefit my home country the 
the worry I have with Canada and the U.S. is that because this cultural difference does not really exist uh, in the way that it would between, say, the U.S. and Albania, that there's really no compelling reason to block this brain drain of people in Canada just moving down to the U.S. for better economic opportunities. Because as far as anyone's concerned, uh, down here, the cultural difference is something like, oh, yeah, you guys have trailer park boys in Canada or something like that. Or, you know, a couple a couple shows that they can think of or a couple, you know, big Canadian figures that made it in the entertainment industry or Hollywood, uh, that sort of thing. So my, my worry is that, you know, state efforts to promote Canadian content as, as it is in, in, in Canada simply isn't enough. Like it's just it's just not enough to prevent that kind of brain drain. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I absolutely agree. So I think that maybe Canadian content is not actually the right way to think about this. Um, this is, and I think for a lot of smaller countries, uh, this is the case. Uh, governments will kind of try and create kitschy local media alternatives to the hegemonic cultural forces like Hollywood. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sometimes it, it creates this kind of uh, cultural fondness that in, in Canada, a lot of people have for CBC. BBC in the UK might actually be a better example of actually creating alternative domestic media because it has a global reach. Um, I actually think that when it comes to Ryan phrase that as Canada has to sell itself better, I think that's actually a more global mindset. Um, this is not just a matter of like, a government or a state convincing its own citizens that it has some kind of cool local alternatives to stuff other countries are doing better. It's that it actually has an advantage. Uh, in a non-cultural area, think of finance in Switzerland. Um, think of what Singapore accomplished with uh, the industries that it thrives in. It was able to not just convince its own citizens that there were like basically baseline acceptable local alternatives. It was actually able to convince the world that it could provide something uh, superior, that could punch above its weight. And this is the danger, maybe, with states becoming too domestically minded. Um, they can forget that by virtue of global anarchy, if you want, uh, they will convince their own citizens by convincing everyone else. That's the way that you can actually attract people to stay somewhere because they know that they can go abroad or at least that other people abroad are seeing their country in the same way that they are seeing it. Um, the example that came to me, Jonah, when you were talking about immigrants in the Bay Area is um, the experience of international students in Canadian and American universities. Like 20 years ago, it was quite common. People would want to stay afterwards. Um, when I was in university, there were a lot of uh, international students from Asian countries, from Europe, and most that I knew ended up going back. And I think when you look at the numbers, you see more and more people are going back. And I, I think that the, the narrative, if you want, that those students accept about the country they've come to plays a strong role in that. And in the case of a place like China, their ability to accept a different narrative that China is now a leading power, for example, also plays a yes. role in that. 
Yeah, one, one interesting thing that I've heard recently is that a lot of Chinese Ivy League graduates uh, in the U.S. Uh, actually love to go back because then the industry they immediately select into is Ivy League preparatory programs um, where they make hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars providing sort of like occult advice on how to get your child accepted in a U.S. Ivy League school. Um, and so that that's just one of the reasons why they, they might go back. But uh, of course, that's not really that in itself is not really the sole reason they're going back. I mean, sure, there's economic opportunity in that particular field, given their experience, but it is very much part of uh, China's increasing dynamism and self-confidence on the world stage, which is slowly going to start spreading to other countries in that hemisphere, which are experiencing similar rapid uh, rates of growth, I think. Well, if you want an older example of this, maybe you can have a look at Japan in the 1970s versus now. Um, you know, when Japan was developing, people were going abroad. Japan is now developed, but it also has a very strong global brand, to just use the maybe crass marketing term. Um, not only Japanese stay in Japan now, but foreigners go to Japan to, to teach or work or study or so on. Um, and that's what I mean, that a powerful narrative actually punches above a country's weight, especially for a small country. I think, you know, when Palladium talks about governance futurism, there's a lot of narrative uh, potential, at least, included in that phrase. I think there's a reason that we found it so interesting when we discussed it. Um, and, you know, when it comes to Avi, your piece, I think that part of the reason that it caught my eye, at least, is because with that use of the term Brezhnevite, with the comparisons to the Soviet Union, um, this is not a comparison that is usually made. Uh, by virtue of making that comparison, we actually brought Canada onto the world stage, not just an inward-looking comparison, but an outward-looking one. Yeah, the stories are, are important, and the narratives that we tell ourselves are important. Um, one thing that struck to me when I was writing the piece was uh, the section on Misha, which, who was my father's friend. And when we were talking about memoirs and memory, so there's this there's this issue in Canada where, which is quite similar to the Soviet Union in many ways, which is we don't have a memory. We don't remember what's happened to us before because our media and our content is so U.S. centric. Um, we don't we don't have an internal story. It doesn't exist. Like people aren't interested in in can't even access what, what has happened before. So it was it was an act of um, it was an act of rebellion against against that structure, which this collect, collective amnesia. So I sat down when writing that section, and I remembered every small detail of 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 of, of life as it was in the in the early two thousands, and I wrote it down to 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 create this narrative, to create this internal story, to create this story across generations. Right. So I talk about my grandfather, my father, and so on. 
And we need to do more of that in Canada. And it's part of creating this national identity and this sense of Canadianness that Ryan mentioned. It's not, it's not possible to create Canadianness if we can't remember anything five year, from five years ago. If all we do all day is tweet about Trump or about the, the US Supreme Court or about California or about Texas, if that's all the content that we consume, what we're doing to ourselves is effectively erasing what we know about ourselves. So the potential of storytelling, not just to, not, is, is important, one, for ourselves to create some kind of consistent internal dialogue within the country, but also in, a, in order to, to be able to market ourselves to, to the world, in order to, uh, whether it's telling immigrant stories or telling stories of, um, of people who have grown up here, to the world, we need to have this memory. We need to begin creating and rediscovering and uh, recentering around Canada the memories that, that that are hidden everywhere. Right? They're hidden in us, but they're also hidden in in different places. Um, if if you go to to old factories in in in, in Montreal, if you go to the towns in Canada, uh, a better understanding of the geography, the land, the memory of Canada is there, and we just need to bring it back and and look at it and be careful and be attentive to that i, I, I really like the way you framed that there um so it really connects there's a there's a concept called the strong story hypothesis which uh you know language didn't come like occur for us to communicate with others language was born for us to have eternal thought uh and stories help us understand ourselves and i think that 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 point conveys that very well that you know we we as a country don't have stories that represent any information to us. And as a result, we don't have the concept of a country. I remember growing up, one of the most uh, popular Canadian TV shows is called uh, Corner Gas, which is fundamentally a show about nothing. And, and so you have the Canadian concept of themselves is that we do nothing. And so even when we do things, um, and I think this, this feeds into what your narrative about pe pessimism, right, is even when we do things we don't really acknowledge that we do them. And um, when Ash was talking about, you know, being a country that has something that it's known for, um, I work in AI space a lot and we are definitely known for that. Everyone sees us as a leader in that, but you talk to Canadians themselves and they don't even perceive us to be leaders in that because we don't actually, have a story. The only time I've heard seen a story published on the history of Canadian AI and how we've done more than anyone, like any other country in sustaining the field was in an American magazine. It wasn't even here. And so that's, that's very, there's, there's a collective amnesia that results from, from not having stories to tell about ourselves. I think that, uh, it strikes me that an important aspect of sovereignty here, uh, one could think of it this way is something like narrative sovereignty, right? If you're a country that really has autonomy in the global space, part of that autonomy is being able to have an understanding of oneself and also of the world that comes from a domestic sense. There's ways you could put the sense of life, culture, values, but basically from a source uh, within the country and its understanding of the world. Um, I saw a very vivid aspect of this not being the case in Canada recently when I was walking by the climate strike march in Toronto. And uh, as I was walking by, um, the whoever had the mic was chanting, leading the crowd in the chant about Trump. 
and I, I, a friend of mine who was going by saw an abolish ICE sign. You know, all, all these aspects of American political narrative, which essentially had entirely colonized and taken over um, the local discourse as well. So the ability to create narrative sovereignty is probably an extremely important um, aspect of statecraft, in a sense, and one that I would say likely has something like best practices. Uh, the danger here is obviously a relativism that one can fall into, which should be avoided. But uh, there's certainly something to be said for the fact that if you are essentially taking, if you're importing wholesale your view of the world from some other power, uh, even if you have something like institutional autonomy on the inside, it's hard to see how you really have a state that has a deep level of autonomy and ability to act in the world. I'm from Montreal and I'm a Quebecer, so uh, a lot of Quebec culture suffers from from another, another pole of attraction, right? So all the great Quebec comedians, writers and artists and actresses and actors all spent at least three to six months of the year in Paris, right? So. It's, it's a place that no one wants to be in and no one wants to talk about and no one wants to, um, to hear about. It's like Canadians want to keep ignoring their own existence, uh, their own problems, which are very specific to them. And the opening paragraph uh, of the piece was about this apology about having the problems and even discussing them. Um, it's funny now that we're thinking about how to become a sovereign nation, how to create, how to forge a Canadian story, that we need storytellers. It's, it's an intangible asset. And, it's, and, and again, like, how do we go about creating a narrative? What are the institutions that we need? And maybe it's just a few people, right? Maybe we don't need as much. It, it, this is something which doesn't require an enormous amount of capital investment or structural changes. Um, it can be done quite easily and quite quickly with very dedicated, almost startup-like mindset, right? Yeah, and I think that that's part of why this was, um, I think, an important and a useful stage to bring this to, because we kind of, in the course of this discussion, you know, we, we started on a lot of policy talk, but there's, uh, and I think this is something that we've kind of discussed both explicitly and implicitly on the Palladium Project, there's a way in which policy talk is kind of used as a way to depoliticize discussions. Everything is just better management or better practices. Um, policy discussion is actually important because it is deeply political. And uh, I, I think that what came through in your piece, Avi, was, and through the narrative format especially, was that um, these seemingly abstract policy discussions, and you included economic graphs on growth and the like in the piece, um, they are all reflections of very political questions um, that can't just be avoided. And, you know, for countries that kind of, and one could perhaps say Canada does this, um, tries to survive on this brand of, you know, being the global nice player, more or less, that is basically stable, has good growth, to avoid facing these tougher questions of statecraft and, you know, how does a country that wants to be a great country uh, conduct itself? Um, it's also an escape method. But I think what comes through here is that you can't actually escape that permanently. So I want to um, open the floor here quickly to uh, if either of you, Ryan and Avi, have some final thoughts, and then we can hand it off to Jonah for wrapping up. 
I think that where the direction of the conversation uh, headed, I, I agree wholeheartedly that this need for for Canada to assert itself, to, to view itself as something. Um, I think one of the reasons why I have optimism in that regard is because we have such strong foundations and we have such a strong pull to come to Canada. And I see us going in the right direction. There is much work to be done, but I, I don't see a pessimism. Um, and I, I hope most of my colleagues don't see a pessimism. Uh, and we see this as something that this can be overcome. Uh, any slump that we're in, anything that we're losing, and all we really need to do is is be proud of ourselves and market ourselves well enough to take advantage of what we've already built, and and our rewards will come. We have some really great people, and one of the ways to keep them here is to give them a purpose to be here. Um, pay and wages and cost of living are important, but ultimately they're there's a frame to it, and that frame is is is, is the story, is the purpose, it's it's the unifying, um, it's the unifying energies. So the part of my the piece, I, I hope it had this effect, and uh, I feel it had, from from the responses that we've gotten, is it has invited conversations around that. And if I've done that, if I've touched someone, then I, then I think that it was worth writing it. What I've liked about this particular podcast is that it's been an excellent sort of theory extension of, of the article, which everyone should read if, if they haven't already, and I'll be sure to link it in the show notes. But this, this uh, self-conception, this sense of purpose, this understanding of, of what a nation is in the minds of the people, part of that nation, I think is, is really crucial Avi, you're totally right. Everything else is kind of downstream of that. And, and each nation has to kind of decide within certain historical bounds what that story is going to look like. And it's going to radically differ across countries. Um, but I think in, in the particular case of, of Canada, I'm not sure what the, the mechanics there will be. I'm not sure what the uh, precursors uh, are for that um, story to actually like take root and and animate people because i think that even more so than america in in canada a lot of people are not on the same page about what's supposed to be done and and why we're all here and and that sort of thing that's precisely what makes us a very interesting question of statecraft i think on that note i think you know maybe there's room for a future episode to talk about about the mechanics a little bit more and, and how it should be done by by a state or an organization or a community, but we'll have to leave that for another time. So in the meantime, Ryan and Avi, thanks for coming on the show and uh, we'll see everyone uh, next time.